Well, good morning, everyone. Now, I'm told that the creche isn't actually staffed this morning, so is that right? So if you've got little ones, you need to go with them today. All right? <laughs> now, the other little ones will be leaving us shortly, but let's just pray for them before they, before they go. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have so many youngsters here. We thank you, Lord, that we are still free in this land to teach them the truth about you the truth about Jesus, the truth about salvation. And our Father, we thank you that we know that you are already working in the hearts of some of them. And it is our prayer and it is our desire, Lord, that you would work in the hearts of all of them. And we pray, Lord, that in your own time you would bring them to a faith, a saving faith in yourself. So we pray, Lord, for everything that goes on out there today. We pray, your Lord, that you would bless the little ones. We pray, Lord, that you would bless those who teach them. Uh, and we pray, Lord, that you will be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, see you, see you later. <coughs> if you've got a Bible in front of you, open it, please, to Matthew chapter 17. If you haven't got a Bible in front of you, then stick your hand in the air and somebody will rectify that. If you want a page number, actually, if you've got one of these red Bibles, the page number is 984. Matthew 17, then, just reading from verse 14. This is what Matthew records for us. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of the boy, and he was healed at that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, Why couldn't we? drive it out. He replied, because you have so little faith. Truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. A phrase that is uh, commonly used in our inclusive world for the purposes of including everyone is those of all faiths and of none. Have you heard of that? I'm sure you have. Now, I'm not convinced that it's even possible to live without ex exercising some faith in something or other. Every time we get into a car or a train or an aeroplane, we have faith in those who have built the thing or maintained it, 
uh, and that it is safe to use. We're exercising some faith there. Uh, or when we buy some food, uh, we are exercising faith in those responsible for getting it to the shelf and that they have done so in a manner that makes it safe to eat. It is a level of faith that everyone has to step into. Jesus spoke about faith a lot during his earthly ministry. But on the occasion that we've just read about, his words were particularly uh, potent, shall we say. And I suppose that the most well-known verse, really, or the most well-known part of this passage is in verse 20 there where he says, say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Now, Jesus probably wouldn't have been the first to have used uh, a phrase like that. Um, It was common in Jewish culture to describe a big problem, uh, an apparently unsurmountable problem, as being metaphorically like a mountain. Uh, And this event in the life of Jesus and his apostles is perhaps his most significant statement on the power of faith in the life of a believer. So let's just set the scene, because um, Matthew is actually quite brief here. Luke and Mark add a lot more. Uh, But this is happening really. Jesus and Peter and James and John have just come down from the mountain where uh, Jesus had been transfigured before their eyes. Uh, They had also met, when they were up there, these two great men of the Old Testament, uh, Moses and Elijah. And then, of course, they had heard the voice of God himself. Back in verse 5, where God said in their hearing, this is my son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased, listen to him. And it must have been a wonderful and glorious experience for them up on that mountain. But now, and Luke tells us it's the next day, they've come down from the mountain. And the scene that meets them is in stark contrast to what they have just experienced. Uh, They come down to earth with a bit of a bump, really. They come face to face once again with the realities of a a fallen, sinful, evil world, uh, full of the pain and suffering and violence and conflict and distress and heartache and ultimate despair. And when they arrive, Mark tells us there is a, a large crowd of people and there is an argument going on. Uh, The crowd includes the nine apostles who hadn't gone up the mountain. It includes a group of Jewish teachers of the law. And it includes a a father and his demon-possessed son. And Mark makes uh, this comment 
about the crowd. Mark 9, verse 15, he says, They were amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And here in Matthew, he tells us in verse 14, When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your, or brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. Now, now some translations will have the word epileptic instead of, of seizures. Uh, actually, they're both incorrect because the original Greek says that this, this boy was moonstruck. Now, the boy's father, he's not making a, a diagnosis. He's not saying that his son's behaviour was somehow governed by the phases of the moon or anything like that. No, he is simply using a, a commonly used term of the time to describe the erratic behaviour of his boy. Uh, we have a, a similar term today. It's, it's rather politically incorrect to use it, but it's the word lunatic. Luna being the Latin for moon. Now, some versions do actually use that word. Now, the boy may have been suffering from epilepsy uh, caused by the physical trauma of being thrown around by the demon. That's possible. We don't know, but it's possible. Um, the point, though, is that what's being described here are his symptoms. There's not a diagnosis being made. The boy was not suffering from some inherited disease, some inherited condition. Uh, the boy is <coughs> suffering and his symptoms are due entirely to the activities of the demon, the evil spirit, the unclean spirit that had taken control of him. Uh, and out of all of the cases of, of demon possession that we read about in the New Testament, this is one of the most severe. Uh, it was only by the preserving grace of God that this boy was even still alive, actually. In uh, Mark's Gospel, Mark 9, 22, the boy's father says this about the demon, it has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. That was his intention. And it was only God who stopped that from happening. And then Luke says this, Luke 9, verse 39, a spirit seizes him and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth it scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. And again in Mark's account, he says this, Mark 9 verse 21, Jesus asked the boy, <coughs> the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. Uh, and Mark also tells us that the demon had made the boy deaf and dumb as well. It's not difficult to understand <clears throat> the father's desperation. 
he must have spent every waking hour just being on guard, ready to rescue his boy from drowning or from being burnt. So that's the scene that meets Jesus <coughs> as he comes down from the mountain. We could say, one only son, beloved of his father, meets another son, also dearly beloved of his father. So what is Jesus teaching his apostles here? Uh, and what is he teaching us today? Well, it's, it's not about demon possession. It's not about casting demons out, as some have suggested. Now, this is a lesson on faith and living the Christian life by faith. This father of this young man had come to Jesus' disciples probably because he had heard that other people in a similar predicaments had done the same and they had done so successfully. The problem was that these disciples couldn't do it. They were unable to drive out <coughs> the demon. Back to Matthew 17, verse 16, I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him, says the Father. Now, Jesus' reaction may at first seem harsh, he says this in verse 17, you unbelieving and perverse generation. Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Now Jesus, he doesn't use the word perverse in the sense of immorality here, I don't think, although it may well have been appropriate for some in the crowd, I'm sure it was. The word means twisted or distorted. And he is more likely using it to describe the, the prevailing attitude towards him and the message that he'd been preaching these two years. Most people just didn't get it, you see. The Messiah they were expecting was very different from the one that appeared. And he's, he's, not he's not directing his comments at his disciples particularly, but to everyone there. Uh, we can tell that he is frustrated and he tells them to just bring the boy to him. Uh, Matthew doesn't describe the reaction of the demon having to come face to face with Jesus, but, but Mark does. Mark 9 verse, verse 20 says this, so they brought him. When the spirit, that's the evil spirit, saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. The demon knew that his days of tormenting this boy were, were nearly up. And it throws this last tantrum, really. It was having to obey its creator. And it remains rebellious right to the end. 
back to Matthew 17, verse 18, Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of the boy and he was healed at that moment. There was no delay. Luke adds this, and they were all amazed at the greatness of God. So the outcome, as it always was with Jesus, was wonderful. And everyone, quite rightly, was in awe at what had just happened. This boy who was so troubled was suddenly healed. But for the nine disciples, one great question remained. Verse 19. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private. They didn't want to ask the question in public. They were probably a bit embarrassed. And they asked, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, because you have so little faith. Now we come across that phrase, little faith, quite a few times in Matthew. And it's always, it seems, directed at the same people. Uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, a sermon that was to believers, by the way, Jesus said this back in Matthew 6. Why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, they're not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? He associates anxiety there with little faith. One night, Jesus and his disciples were in a boat when a severe storm blew up on the lake. And the disciples were terrified. But before calming the storm, Jesus rebuked his disciples because their fear was because of their little faith. Another night, the same thing happened, except this time, Jesus was not with them, and instead he came to meet them, walking on the water. And when he arrived at the boat, he invited Peter to step out of the boat and onto the water, uh, which he does in faith. But because of his doubts, he begins to sink. And Matthew records this, Matthew 14, verse 31. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. And he says to Peter, you of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And shortly after Jesus had fed the 5,000 and then the, the 4,000, uh, the disciples were with him on another trip and they forgot to take bread with them. And they were worried about going hungry. Matthew 16, verse 8 says this, Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, 
you of little faith, why are you talking about amongst yourselves about having no bread? And he has to remind them of the thousands who had been <coughs> fed before and the basketfuls of leftovers that were left for all the disciples. And now, here in chapter 17, he has to just chastise them again because of their little faith. If there was ever a, a, a you of little faith society, then these 12 disciples would have been the best qualified members, wouldn't they, without doubt. But Jesus graciously doesn't leave them with the telling off. Back to chapter 17. Verse 19, Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, Because you have so little faith, truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Now these verses have often been misunderstood. At first glance, actually, it seems like there's a contradiction there in verse 20. To, to begin with, Jesus tells his disciples that the reason why they couldn't drive the demon out was because of their little faith. But then he says that if they have faith as small as a mustard seed, then they will be able to move these normally insurmountable problems. So what does he mean here? What is he on about? Well, it helps that the Lord had used this metaphor of the mustard seed before, in the parable of the mustard seed, back in Matthew 13. Matthew 13, it's a very short parable, just two verses, uh, verses 31 and 32, and he says this. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. Now, the most significant feature of the mustard seed is not its small size, but the fact that it grows. And we don't have to look further than these apostles to see what Jesus was talking about. Now, we don't know much about the ministries of most of them, but what we do know about the others tells us that their little faith, as Jesus was describing it here, didn't remain little. Hebrews 11 
gives a list, a long list, of some of the heroes of faith from the Old Testament. And if there was another list of those from the New Testament era, then these apostles would certainly be at the top of that list. The idea of little faith needing to be grown was clear when Jesus walked on the water. Peter had faith enough to step out of the boat and he walked a few steps on the water but then his doubts overcame him and he began to sink. He needed greater faith. His little faith needed to grow into greater faith. And the need for a faith that grows was obviously evident in the heart of this demon-possessed boy's father. Did you notice that? Well, you wouldn't have noticed that because it's in Mark's rendering of it. Mark 9, verse 21 says this. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he asked. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if, we, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Isn't that a wonderful attitude, just from the off? If, we, if you remember nothing else from this morning, remember this. This man had faith. Maybe like the disciples, it was very little faith. But he had faith. But he realised that it needed to be greater faith. And he had a desire in his heart that it would be greater. He says, I have faith, I believe, but help my unbelief. In other words, he's saying, help my little faith become bigger faith. And that is crucial. We see repeatedly that Jesus was frustrated at the lack of faith that he saw in the people around him. When he went way up north into the foreign land, into Tyre and Sidon, he met a Canaanite woman and he said, I've never seen faith in Israel like this. Perhaps one of the things that must frustrate God with his people today is that we are all too often quite happy, quite content with the little faith that we have. Now, we don't have time to look at it now, but maybe there's some homework for you here. Write this down if you've got a pen. Luke 17, verses 5 to 10, records an occasion when the disciples asked Jesus to give them more faith. 
And cutting a long story short, Jesus rebukes them, which at first seems odd. But the context implies that the reason was because they were not being the forgiving people they should have been. And they weren't going to have greater faith until they started living the life they ought to live. Now that's perfectly in keeping with the rest of Scripture. James 5, 15, uh, 16, verse 16, very familiar verse. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. A righteous man is a man who's living their life in the way God wants him to live it. Prayer and faith go hand in hand. We pray in faith, we pray with faith. If we are not living the life God tells us to live, if we are disobedient, then we shouldn't expect our faith to be anything other than little. If we are candidates for the Year of Little Faith Society, then the first place to look for a reason why that might be the case is in the mirror. We need to ask ourselves the question, are we living the life God calls us to live? It's a big question. It's a sobering question. And all too often that is the reason why we have such little faith. Now, as is so often the case, we must look at what is not being taught here. Back to Matthew 17, verse 20 again. <clears throat> Truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Now, Many have taught and many have been taken in by the idea that Jesus is saying that no matter what it is or what the circumstances are, if we are convinced enough that something will happen, then it will happen. We can force it to happen. And there has been much damage done to believers and to the church because of such an interpretation. People with a, a whole range of difficulties in their lives, from health problems to finance issues, have been told that those problems exist in their lives because of their lack of faith, when it had nothing to do with their lack of faith. We must avoid reducing faith to merely positive thinking. There is much more to it than that. Our Lord is, is not making an unconditional promise here. Just using simple logic about what we know about the attributes of God and who he is tells us that. If we were able to make absolutely anything happen just by being convinced in our hearts that it will happen, what would that make us? It would make us sovereign. 
it would give us complete sovereignty over everything. And there is only one person who has the attribute of sovereignty, and that is God himself. If this promise applied in that way, absolutely to all of us who believe, then sovereignty would have to be shared for a start, and that would be a contradiction in terms. I hope you can see that there is a rather important caveat to this promise. In the answers to our prayers will be within the sovereign will of God. It is sad how often professing Christians will pray that something will happen and they're convinced in their heart that it will happen when just a cursory look at scripture will tell them that what they are praying for is entirely outside of God's revealed will. You wouldn't believe the number of times I've come across that. Now, not all of God's will is revealed, of course. Strong faith is not only subject to the revealed will of God, which we find in the Bible, but it is also subject to the will of God that is yet to be revealed in our lives. And there are many examples of that in Scripture. I think the, the most well-known is probably that of the Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul writes about some amazing things that he, he had seen, probably seen, certainly that he had heard, when he was given the privilege of being shown heaven itself. And he goes on to say that because of that great privilege that he had had, there was a danger that he might become proud, conceited even. So God allowed Satan to inflict on Paul some kind of suffering. We are not told what it was. It may have been physical, it may have been mental, it may have been circumstantial. We don't know. Paul called it his thorn in the flesh. And he prays for it to be removed. In fact, he says he pleaded for it to be removed. And he says he prayed three times for it to be removed. Now, yes, that, that may have meant that he did it on Monday and then on Tuesday and again on Wednesday, although I doubt it. Uh, in verse 2 of 2 Corinthians 12, he tells us that his heavenly vision or visit, whatever it was, happened 14 years before his letter. So perhaps it was more likely to have been three extended periods of time during those years when he, Paul made it a matter of fervent prayer, pleading that God would remove that thorn in the flesh from his life. But God said no. In fact, we read this, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. 
But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Did his thorn in the flesh remain with Paul because he had little faith? The answer to that is a resounding no. It was because it was God's will and purpose. And it was there for Paul's benefit and for God's glory. And Paul's reaction was to accept it and rest and rejoice in God's grace. How we accept or how we react to God answering our prayers in the way we did not expect him to is so important. I think the case of King David is one from which we can learn. David had murdered Uriah the Hittite and he had taken his wife for his own. And the son born to them became ill. Wayne read the passage to us earlier. I'm going to read it again, actually. 2 Samuel 12, 14 to 23. Because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, this is Nathan speaking, the the son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, The Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had borne to David and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the nights lying on sackcloth on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's attendants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought while the child was still living, he wouldn't listen to us when we spoke to him. How can we now tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. He carries on in verse 19. David noticed that his attendants were whispering among themselves and he realised the child was dead. Is the child dead? he asked. Yes, they replied. He is dead. Then David got up from the ground after he had washed, put lotions on and changed his clothes He went to the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house and at his request they served him food and he ate. His attendants asked him, why are you acting this way? Well, the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but now that the child is dead, you get up and eat. He answered, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows, 
the Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him and he will not return to me. Paul pleaded that God would take his thorn in the flesh away. God said no. Paul accepted it as the will of God and carried on his ministry, totally dependent on the grace of God. David pleaded for the life of his son. God said no. David accepted that that was God's will. He also knew that God had made him king of Israel. He was the anointed one. And that it was God's will that he was on the throne. So he got up. He washed, he dressed, he ate. He made himself presentable. And he went to the house of God and he worshipped his heavenly father. Why? Because God had made him king of Israel. He had a kingdom to govern. So he gets on with the job God had given him because that was God's will. Back in Matthew 17, we know that it was God's will that the disciples were able to drive this demon out of the boy. How do we know that? Because Jesus had told them. Back in Matthew 10, verse 1, Jesus called his disciples, his 12 disciples, to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits or demons and to heal every disease and sickness. That's why when the disciples asked Jesus why they couldn't drive the demon out, he didn't tell them it was because they were outside of God's will, because that wasn't the case. The reason they couldn't drive the demon out was because of their little faith. I'll finish just by summarising some of these points that we looked at. First of all, we need to remember that God is sovereign. For those who believe, who have given their life to Christ, that is a, a wonderful truth, that God is sovereign over our lives. One who loves us is sovereign over everything. For those who are, have not done that, it is a, a terrifying truth, actually. Hebrews 10, verse 31 says this, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It certainly is if you are not a believer, because that God is sovereign. Secondly, believers can rest in the fact that God knows what is best for us. Very familiar verse, very dear to every believer. Romans 8, 28. And we know 
that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. As believers, as members of God's family, we can rest in the fact that whatever happens to us, it is for our good and for God's glory. Anyone who has been a believer for any length of time will tell you that there will have been times in the past when they prayed that something particular would come to pass, but that that thing did not happen. And it hasn't been until later that it has become clear that that thing we were praying for, maybe very fervently, and for a long time, would not have been for our good or for God's glory. So God stopped it happening. As in the case of Paul, as in the case of David, God said, no, I know what's best for you. Thirdly, let's remember this. God is, of course, pleased that we have faith. If we are a Christian, then the, the simple faith that is saving faith is a gift from God. But God does not want that faith, if we are a Christian, to remain little faith. Those apostles may have started out having little faith. But they didn't stay that way. And neither are we to stay that way. Like the mustard seed, that little faith is intended to grow. And it's intended to grow into something substantial. Prayer and faith, as I said earlier, go hand in hand. <clears throat> and the more we pray, the more we seek the will of God, his good and perfect will. And as we grow in grace, our prayers will desire that sovereign will of God, to know it. And we will rejoice at the wonderful things God will do according to his perfect will. Let me close with a verse from the prophet Malachi. Malachi verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 10. God said this. He said, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. May we take God at his word. 
and step forward in an even greater faith. Let's not be content with having itty-bitty faith. Let's be like the mustard seed. Let's make it, let's ask God to make it grow so that our little faith will change into greater faith. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that saving faith is simple faith, it is little faith, and we thank you, Lord, for when that happens, what a great uh, thing that is. There is rejoicing in the courts of heaven when someone has simple faith and is saved by grace, and we thank you for that. We all thank you for that, and we desire that it happens more and more in this place. But our Father, for those of us who are believers, those of us who are in your kingdom. We pray, Lord, that you would forgive us for having such little faith. We pray, Lord, that you would forgive us for living lives that mean that that little faith remains little faith. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to live the lives that would enable you to make that faith grow. And we pray, Lord, that we would have a desire, like that father of that boy, to have greater faith. And our Father, we pray that you would cause us, as a people, as a local church, to be noticed because we have greater faith. So our Father, we pray, Lord, that you would be glorified in our lives. We pray, Lord, that you would save many. And we pray, Lord, that those in your kingdom would step forward in greater faith. Be with us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.